Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 74. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com amazing to start your springtime adventure. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's Laura Reagan, LCSWC, with today's episode. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today in episode 74, you are going to hear about sand play. So those of you who are therapists, you may be familiar with using sand tray therapy with your clients. I personally had always thought it was something to be used with children, but in recent years, I've learned that that's not the case. Of course, it can be used with children, but it can also be used with adults. It can be a great way to access nonverbal emotions and to tell a story that maybe can't be told in words for some reason. So I was very interested in learning more about using sand play with clients. And I've had a little demonstration of sand play myself. I've never actually used it as a therapy client or a therapist yet, but someone showed me how they used it. And as soon as I put my hands into the sand, I just was fascinated. I just wanted to keep doing it. And it wasn't something that, you know, I could necessarily have described the feelings that came up. It was really cool. So I'm planning on getting some training in sand play soon The person who I'm interviewing in today's episode is the co-author of a book that any therapist can get about sand play. I'll be talking to Anna Goodwin, who is a psychotherapist and lecturer and writer and professional speaker in Idaho. Anna got her master's degree in Maryland at the same place that I went, but she has a good bit more experience than I do. And she's the author of several books 
the one that came to my attention that I wanted to talk to her about was Sand Play Therapy, a step-by-step manual for psychotherapists of diverse orientations. Anna co-wrote that book with Barbara Boyk. And I think you're going to find our interview to be very interesting. She talks about how sand tray can be done in therapy sessions and what the benefits are. So let's go ahead and get started and listen to my interview with Anna Goodwin. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I'm really excited to have a guest with me who has a rich work history and a wealth of experience to share. My guest today is Anna Goodwin, the author of the book, Sand Play Therapy. Anna, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Laura. It's so great to be here. And thank you so much for asking me. Oh, it's really a pleasure. And I'm so excited because you have an extensive background in working with sand play. And I don't know very much about it. I'm just eager to learn from you and to hear you talk about your work and your book. So let's just go ahead and start off by if you could tell me, tell us about yourself and your work. Well, you know, uh, Laura, what is interesting when I met you or on uh, telephone, actually, we discovered that we'd both gone to the same university and at the University of Maryland at Baltimore, and I thought that was kind of fascinating. Such a cool connection. Yeah, isn't that? And we were living in Columbia, Maryland at the time, even though it's many years ago. But actually, I was introduced to sand play at that time at the university. Well, uh, I was at the Walter Carter Center in, in Baltimore, and there was a therapist there who had done sand play. And I thought it I was working specifically with kids at that time, and I thought it was such an incredible technique, especially for children, and that's really all I knew at the time, was that it was really valuable for children. And we had them do their trays, and then they would tell us stories about that. And I used that technique for the rest of my time. When I went to Bozeman, I started working with particularly abused children. And at that time, uh, Bozeman, Montana, it's a city in Montana, they did not even have records of how many kids had been physically abused and how many kids had been sexually abused, etc. But I started a private practice, and what happened was that social services referred all their kids to me. Mm. And that's how it developed. And I worked mostly with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, almost all the number of years I've worked as a therapist. And it was really amazing because shortly after that, I recognized that the kids loved the sand tray like I'd had it previously. And I had a tray and put out uh, put out some objects for them, and then uh, with sand tray, what they do is you. Uh, it started as Lowenfeld. Might be interesting for your audience to have a little bit of history about sand play. Yes, please. And uh, what happened was that in the 1920s, 
Lohenfeld was a child psychologist, one of the very first ones in London, and she had put out a tray of sand, like we all know kids love to play in the sand, in the sandboxes in your backyard and everything, and she had put out some objects, and they were separate, and she had put out a tray for water so that they could do some water play. Well, she always credits the children for uh, creating sand play. What happened was, is they started putting water into the tray, mixing it up with the sand and building things. Like you can build mountains if you have water in the tray. It makes it solid objects. Whereas if you just have dry sand, it flows. The sand flows and won't stay the way they like it. And so this way they could build rivers and whatever they wanted to and make the scene they liked. And then they started adding the objects to the tray. And what she found was it was the very best way for her to be able to communicate with children because, as you know, developmentally, most of the young children aren't at the age where they are conscious enough to know uh, if you ask them a question they wouldn't know how to answer it because they don't realize what's going on inside of them. And what I found was probably it wasn't until 17 or so that the kids could really examine something and look at the process that was occurring. But they could show us in stories through their unconscious mind. And then we'd ask them to tell them a, tell us a story. Or they would do what we call an active tray, which is they create the scene in the sand and they move everything. And especially with boys, they have armies fighting, vehicles running. Girls tend to play tea parties and things like that, depending on the developmental stage. The other person that was then later involved, she had studied with Lohenfeld was Dora Kolf, and she was from Germany, and that she turned it into what is a Jungian sand play technique. And this is what most people have used throughout the time. She attributed certain archetypal meanings to the objects in the tray, and uh, which was very helpful, though we, have, we don't do that much anymore. So maybe I should talk a little bit about meaning. Would that sure. be helpful, That would be great. You can never tell for sure what is going on in the tray. One of my the people that came to me that was studying said, okay, I want to know whether this kid was abused or not. Mm. You can't totally do that because almost everything that happens is symbolic in mm-hmm. the tray. So it it would be difficult to say, okay, this isn't, you know, this is what actually happened to the child. But we do always make sure to have police cars for objects and ambulances and all those kind of items. So what it does do, though, it gives you a very good idea what's going on in the unconscious mind of the child. And... What is so incredibly fascinating is that they can resolve things without ever speaking, but they play it over and over again. 
and they can probably resolve things in their mind in six sessions that it would have taken at least two times as long previously. Mm. So the meanings, uh, the archetypal meanings that have been given are helpful. Like, let's say water tends to under... Uh, young be the emotion uh, and the unconscious, and that is probably true. But there is also a personal meaning that the person gives to something. So, for instance, for me, a uh, snake is not dangerous. I grew up in central Canada, and we had cute little garter snakes, <laughs> And we'd play with them. You know, we thought they were really sweet, you know, and we'd carry them around and pull their tails, you know, how that goes, <laughs> and <laughs> stuff like that. But if you come from an area where the snakes are uh, dangerous snakes, then you're dealing with a completely different story. Or if your parent has been very afraid of snakes, that may well create a different story, too, because then there's the fear of that particular object that the child doesn't know why. Mm -hmm. So we like to give it more of a meaning of what that person gives to it. And what we do is we ask questions. And we'll look at the object as related to other objects that they put in the tray. And who's looking at who? And sometimes people look at the tray and they said, I got to change that one object. And they change it maybe by a quarter of a turn or not even. And they said, okay, now it's right. Yeah. So it, those are things as the therapist you're watching for. And when you're watching that, you're seeing, okay, where is this person looking now that they weren't before? So you would ask, what happened when you changed the mother figure or whatever name that person has given this object? What changed at that time? And older clients can usually tell you young children wouldn't be able to. But teenagers often can and say, oh, well, now I'm looking at my dad straight in the face or I'm looking away from him. I don't want to see him. Those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So thank you for giving us a little explanation about some of the meaning. And I think um, when I heard of sand play or sand tray therapy, that I, I thought it was for children. So, mm -hmm. you know, as you mentioned, when you first started working with it, that, you know, I just thought it was another form of play therapy. Right. And now I see that so many therapists use sand tray methods with adults. And mm -hmm. I can understand from what you're saying about the unconscious how it could be very powerful in working with adults. Yeah, we have used it. We started off using it mostly with children. We had a, a sand tray room. We called it sand tray and the Jungian technique is with a capital, and if you're just doing Santre the way we did it, which is an offshoot of that, we had a little S to it. Okay. But what we saw was that it was incredibly powerful for adults, too, because they're little kids inside, too, very often. And 
all the, and particularly if the client got stuck somewhere, and this usually happens in the process, you know, you're doing, I don't know, cognitive therapy or any of the other therapies that you do, and there comes a time where it kind of, I don't know, seems to stay that way and nothing new is coming up. And that's a really good time. Or if they have a dream that they come in with and aren't sure what it means, the Santre, one of the reasons it's so powerful is even more so than art therapy is that you have three-dimensional objects. Mm. They're like being on Earth. And you can touch them and you can move them. So in art therapy, once you've done the the piece, you can't change it. Mm. With the sand play, you can change it constantly. doesn't matter. As your process changes, you can change the objects and put them in different places. So that's one of the powerful things. And we started uh, doing a lot of it uh, more with adults and Adults aren't quite as open to it mm-hmm. as children are. You know, they come in the room and the first, we put the tray right <laughs> at the front, you know, and they go, Woof, and they rush right over to the tray and they, they take their objects almost immediately and put them in. It's just a natural thing. Adolescents think, ooh, that's too young for them. And so you have to do a little work with them first, a couple of sessions and and ask them what they think, or uh, uh, would it be helpful if we did that in the in the sand tray? And explain a little bit that I do it myself is what I usually say. I like it very much because if I have some questions in my mind and I can't figure it out, sand play usually tells me what is going on inside of me. And many, especially the girls, are willing to do it at that point, the adolescents. And they can get an enormous amount out of it and, again, resolve things much faster. Adults, again, the women are much more willing to do it than the men. It's just not a manly thing. But sometimes we refer to, well, did you like to play in the sand when you were a kid? Because boys love playing in the sand when they're a kitten. They broom their, you know, vehicles. And we have all those things there. And after a while, they will usually say, yeah. And you might have them do stuff in the sand the first time without any thought of what's going to happen. And you don't even analyze it or ask questions about it. And they just play. Uh, for half an hour or something, and they have a great time, and it introduces them to the play. We have found that adults can often, if they do, we have sometimes have several trays, and they can go from one tray to the next. And what we found is that quite a few of the adults will go to what used to be, mm-hmm. what is now, and what is in the future. And their unconscious mind already knows that. But as a conscious mind, we don't know where we're going. But then, and they resolve a lot of abuse issues and family issues and children's issues. But then we found that marital therapy was incredible 
So just let me tell you a little bit about one incident. In the book, I think we have named several incidents. We have tell people how they can work with children and adults and couples and families, because that's what we mostly did. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) The fascinating thing was we were going to do an educational tape for workshops and if people wanted to buy it, et cetera. And we did several of those. And the couple came in and it was a premarital counseling uh, and they were willing to try the sand tray. And so the sand tray was out there and I personally have three colors that I like. I, I have a black, no, actually I have four, a regular sand, and then it, it's a fine sand, and some people love the fine sand. I do myself. Then I have a black sand that I got in Costa Rica, and they allowed me to take it in. I just sterilized it. And I have some of the sa- uh, sandy colored, or kind of almost uh, an orange colored sand from southern Utah. And I also have some kind of a red sand, and I'm not sure where that's from. I bought that. Hmm. Uh, And people will choose the color they want to be in. And uh, anyway, this couple chose the orange sand. They love that, and it's very fine and sweet. and, And we have them build their tray together. What it tells you, first of all, how do they relate and how do they negotiate? So as they're building, you can already watch and see what that relationship is about and the objects that they're taking and how the guy kept moving some of the objects towards or taking it out of the tray uh, of his fiance's tray section. Sometimes they separate it. Sometimes they build together. It's, it's very fascinating to watch, and you can tell almost all the issues they're going to have in their marriage. The other thing that happened is that the woman brought in a rocking chair, hmm. and we didn't consider it much. And when we went through the process of talking about each of the objects, the man said, what is that rocking chair doing in there? And he had moved it away from the center. She had it in the center. And she said, well, we're going to have children. And he said, who said? Mm. And and you'd think they had already discussed this. And they had, hypothetically. But it had never come down to actually seeing it physically and experiencing it. So, long story short, at the end, they separated. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And we decided not to use the the video. You can see why. But it was one of the greatest examples of bringing out issues that, as a therapist, you might not have addressed and could not have addressed in the same way. Yeah. So, anyway, marriage counseling is very powerful that way. You see all the dynamics, everything that is going on. And in families, uh, we often start with them 
each, uh, I worked a lot with trauma, so a lot of mine were trauma trays. Each of the people in the family, let's say there had been a trauma in the family or someone, in the one case, the uh, one of the girls had been raped, and they each make a tray perceiving it the way they saw the trauma and how it is affecting the family. And what's so powerful about that is that each child even can show how it is affecting them. Mm. And whereas otherwise the child would not, a, a younger child would not be able to really tell you. They say, oh, I'm okay, you know, mm-hmm. and leave it at that. But in the tray, they will put it down and you start going through all of them. Each person has to tell their story. Each person has to go through their figures. We don't say I or they don't say I, but this object or this child, whatever, is feeling so-and-so or is mad at mom or whatever it could be or is mad at sister because she's been so mean to me lately. And you go through all of the trays, and then you have them take the objects that are important in their tray, all of them, and bring them into a large tray. And we have a tray that we call a family tray that is especially big. Mm. Most of them are about 20 by 30 by 3. And this particular tray is 20 by 45 so that you can put a lot more objects in, depending how big the family is. And then they figure out where all of the objects are going to go that they brought in. They can put them in, and then we process that. And it really brings a lot of resolution, and very often, like in this incident where the girl had been raped, she realized that the whole family was really supporting her, Mm. But they didn't want to talk about it because they knew she would get so upset. Mm. And so there were a lot of really good things that came out of that session that would have been really hard to get any other way. So, yeah, we use it. And a lot of people use it for groups. I haven't. But if your group therapist works incredibly well, we did it in our Santre uh, workshops at the end of the 12 hours that we did. and gave people CEUs for that. We had them all bring the one object that was most important to them during the workshop and put them into the tray. First of all, they built it together and then Mm. they put their object in and then when we had everybody go around and talk about it. So yeah, it's uh, again, it goes into the unconscious and often you find that people move objects after they've put them in. And we always make sure at the end we ask, is there anything you want to change now that you've gone through this process? And very often they do. An example was a a young girl, she was 11, uh, who had been referred to me by a town nearby, social services, who had been sexually abused by her father. And her sister had been also. Her sister was very angry about the abuse. She, however, was not. She could not get at 
anything except being scared her dad wouldn't love her anymore. Mm. And, of course, he told her she was the special child and all those kind of wonderful things. And so she was very, very afraid of losing him. And what the social workers found out from the, the mother kind of colluded with him, but, of course, the kids were taken out of the family and then stayed with the mother. But the mother never said anything. She would not even come into therapy. Mm-hmm. But the school teachers were really great. And so they started to realize that he was waiting for her at the end of the school day. Mm-hmm. And she would go to him. And they were very concerned about this. So we were working with with having her be able to say no, which was terrifying to her. And so the sand play was really what broke that pattern because she started building. It's very fascinating. She had the man, she had a, a river, and then she had a bridge over it. And she was on, she identified herself as the child on one side and the father was on the other side. And when the father called, she would race across the bridge and join him. And so I said, uh, so is there any way that this child, uh, what would happen if she couldn't do that? She said, I, I don't know. And I said, is there anything you can do in this picture, this scene, that would change that? And she took out the bridge because there was no more. She, uh, in her mind, then could not cross because it was a big river and she had no way of going to see him. And there was something, and I don't know how the mind works half the time, but (laughs) dramatic that happened with her. And I said, and so what happens now? And... She looked at her dad because her dad was calling to her and he couldn't come across, but, and she couldn't come across. And her dog was there. She was very, very fond of her dog. And so the dog was barking on her side and she looked at the dog and ran off with him Mm. and did not look back at the father. And there was something, as I say, in the unconscious mind that changed for her at that time. And uh, after that, the social workers contacted me and said, that's gone. She isn't uh, seeing him anymore. She won't come out to see him. So something changes in the mind that is really dramatic when, when you can see it and touch it. We even like to put objects in that you can smell, like sage, or I I have an old perfume bottle that's really great, and the kids like to sniff it, and even the adults do often put it in, and roses, any objects. Regular objects are great. People love them. When we do workshops, we always cut pine trees and all kinds of objects that, uh, you know, the pine trees are very, well, they smell good, they 
feel good. They're fresh, and they use them as trees mm. uh, and as an environment that they would like to be in very often. Moss, that, the problem with collecting objects, if, if we're talking to a group of therapists who is interested in doing this, it became almost an obsession to me <laughs> and to Barbara, too. Everywhere we went, we saw objects. So I think we had well over a thousand objects <laughs> at that point. Yes, I've heard that, that people become, you know, you, you, no shelf is big enough to contain all of the sand tray nope. collection. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, I think that's one of the things that's stopped me from pursuing it because I'm like, can I handle this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you have somebody in your life that can help you with <laughs> My husband was the worst person in my life at the time to handle that because he would bring home objects <laughs> for me. <laughs> he was supporting your addiction. <laughs> yeah, he was. And he'd go out of garage sales and all kinds of things. Oh, what do you need? <laughs> And so he'd make a list of the objects I needed and he'd bring home more and more and more. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the one problem, but it's fun. Yeah. And I've heard from some other therapists that um, natural objects like feathers, shells can also, yeah. and, and that's a lot different from what I think most people think of when they think of a sand tray. Right, right. Rocks are very, very important, and sometimes people bring in objects themselves that are important to them, and rocks are often important to people. It's the solidity, the foundation, and they feel that there is something solid they can hang on to. So we tend to have rocks, gems, etc. A lot of people, uh, because I did hypnotherapy as well, I would attach, people would attach certain meaning to certain objects that they could care, carry around in their pockets or whatever. And if they became like for kids who uh, have hyperactivity or whatever and were having difficulty calming themselves or people with PTSD, I use it with veterans too, very effective with veterans and their families and they would carry this object around with them, which mm. was a solid rock most of the time or something they'd found in nature. And they would bring it to the sand tray. So a lot of people bring their objects, some of their objects along with them that they want to work on. It's true with mourning, particularly if people are grieving a family member or I was working with kids whose Fathers were gone, were vet or were in the military, and they would bring pictures mm. of him, and we would work that into the tray. Or they'd bring special objects. One I know had lost his dad in the war, and he brought the dog tags with him and wow. buried them. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And so there are those kind of ways have very specific meanings. Buried objects are pretty common, and it's very easy to collude with the client at that point. And your mind, I don't know, wants to 
bury them too, I guess, because I've found sometimes, most of the time, I'm very cautious about that and say to myself, Anna, remember that uh, bottle of medicine? Because we used to have empty bottles of prescription medicine and alcohol bottles, all that kind of stuff for mm. people. They And this one man buried it right by the river under the bridge. And I, he completely forgot about it when he talked about his, his wonderful little story. <laughs> and I forgot about it too. Yeah. Because, you know, your mind just colludes with that person. Yeah. So the next time I brought it up, because you've got to bring it up somewhere. And what it dealt with is his fear, which he had not dealt with in his tray at all of his wife committing suicide with prescription drugs. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and, but he was hiding it in the unconscious. And that was an incredible way of starting to bring up all that. The other person that I remember had been abused over years as a child. She buried bones all over. And uh, she didn't want to look at the bones at all and became very anxious when I started asking her about what happened to those bones and did not want to uncover them. So we had her literally take about three or four sessions to uncover the bones. And we address that it's a very scary thing, but that we can take our time and we'll be able to deal with it. So, yeah, natural objects are probably the most powerful for most people. Mm. And they can, uh, as I say, they're a great way of communicating. We found that we've worked with other cultures coming in. I had some Vietnamese refugees that I dealt with, and they didn't speak English very well, but it didn't matter. They could use the objects and create what they needed to, and then we could go through as well as we could going through those objects. and. Uh, we ask people if they're a different religion than what we have. I think we have Native American, Buddhist, some Muslim figures, and, of course, uh, quite a few Christian figures. And if it's something else, they, we ask them to bring their objects with them and to use them. So, yeah, it's a great way of handling people whom you cannot communicate with well in other ways or don't know well. This is so interesting. I feel like we could have another whole interview talking yeah. about this because it's so, I mean, I have a million questions I'd like to ask if we had more time for that today. Right. Can you tell for the people who are listening, can you tell them, you talked about it some already, but who would benefit from your book, Sample Therapy and how can they use it? Okay. Yeah, it's interesting because when Barbara and I were doing the workshops, because we decided, you know, it was such a powerful technique, we really wanted to have other psychotherapists and psychologists, etc., knowing the technique to a point where they could really apply it and use it well. So we did uh, a lot of workshops and went over all over the United States to do them. 
what happened is that most of our therapists in those days, because it was written in 2000, asked, well, is there a book telling Mm -hmm. me how to do this? We'd said, "Uh, no. And they'd say, well, would you write a book? We'd say, hmm. So finally we decided, okay, we'll do this. We've got like 40 pages that we hand out anyway. Take us no time at all. We can (laughs) put this together. Not quite that simple. Took us about a year. But it's called Sand Plate Therapy, a step-by-step manual for psychotherapists of diverse orientations. And we suggest that people use it, well, they can use it as a, a specific technique, but we use it as an adjunct to therapy whenever we need it, which you can bring out certain things, but we use gestalt in it. We use cognitive therapy, psychodynamics, and, you know, like dance and all kinds of things that we can use with it. Just about any therapy that you're used to using, uh, empowerment therapy and meditation, etc., it can all happen in the tray as you're working. Uh, so we found that we can use it as an adjunct to therapy instead of just a therapeutic technique. And we can use it with pretty well any form of therapy that you're accustomed to using it. Uh, so when that happened, we wrote the book. And the book is for any counselor, therapist, even nursing staff. Some of the people that have shown interest are people who are working in playrooms in psychiatric hospitals. or um, And uh, teachers can use it. They probably would not use the counseling techniques, Mm -hmm. but just to tell the kids and to witness, that's one of the most powerful things, to witness what they are doing because you sit next to them and watch them. You don't need to say anything, but they need to believe that there's someone that's seeing them and hearing them because so many people have not had that in their lives. Uh, so the book is valuable for, as I say, you can use it, have school teachers, a lot of school counselors using it, and psychotherapists of all orientations. We had uh, school psychologists that asked us for a workshop. So anyone using with working with children, and now I'm finding that uh, I've written a book on how to cope with stress after trauma, especially for veterans and their families, and it's on Amazon, that veterans' families, the wives are often, it's really powerful technique for them, but even the veterans, if they're willing to do it, just remember this one woman coming home from the first Iraq war, and she had been a pilot And doing a tray that just uh, really, and and she had PTSD from seeing where all her bombs dropped and the children and families being killed. It was a very powerful technique. So I think that it can be used for veterans organizations. So you can pretty well use it anywhere. And I think therapists of any kind 
it's not for the average person. I've given it yeah. to a couple of people and they just say, huh? You know, <laughs> so you'd probably not the best thing, but certainly good for it. And we've sold it all over the world. It has been translated into Chinese, uh, which was really interesting. We got this letter and this book in the mail, and it's published by W.W. W. Norton. And I looked at it and I say, what in the world is that? Because it's a bunch of figures, you know, Chinese. And I looked inside and I said, oh, my, our, our uh, pictures are in there, <laughs> so, which was kind of interesting. But, yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm, I'm guessing that people who are listening who are not therapists but might be interested in how Samplay can help them can use what you talked about to understand you know, that that could be something they could seek in a therapist if they're looking for one. Yes, so. absolutely. And I would suggest that to a certain degree that people, let's say they're living in apartments or something and they don't have access to a lot of the earth things. I would love to see them create a sand tray and that's all in the book and that people could use and the kids can play with it because children often play and replay and replay mm -hmm. a trauma and then it's gone. And so even if they don't know how to work with this, just have them play. Play, get some objects, get a tray, get, uh, and you can even just use a plastic tray. You know, they have those that, I don't know, uh, most of the, shopping centers or Home Depot, you know, the, all those places where you have the, the trays that are about 20 by 30 and just fill it with about two to three inches of sand. And if you don't mind them making it wet and making a mess, you can put uh, some water next to it. A lot of parents, what they do is they just take the objects and they have them build things in the sand. And the kids just love it, and they resolve so much in it. Mm, that's really good to know. So, Anna, this has been really helpful and very interesting. I really have enjoyed it, and I appreciate everything you've shared. Is there anything that you're doing now in terms of workshops where people can learn from you or anything that you have besides this book and your book about trauma, which I'd love for you to mention the name of that too. Well, I'm semi-retired and of course you're not supposed to say retired. You have to say previous now, <laughs> but <laughs> funny how the world changes. Our, our, our language changes. I am still consulting with people and oh, I perfect. get, yeah, I get people contacting me by email or Skype and They'll ask me often what the meaning is or what they can do or how they can look at certain things. And I've enjoyed doing that. I, you know, have fun with the therapist trying to figure out at least to a certain degree what direction they want to go with this. Yeah. So how can people reach you for that? Oh, wow. I'll give you my email address. That's probably the easiest. And then if they give me theirs, then I can uh, start conversing with them. Okay. And my email address is J-A-R, like a jar, a glass jar, you know, mm -hmm. 
Um, <laughs> Goodwin at msn.com. And they just can contact me and we can work out whatever works and see where we're going from that. And as I say, I, I do it more for fun now than I used to do. Uh, and don't charge a lot. You know, in the good old days as a therapist, I could charge $100 an hour, which I don't do anymore. <laughs> well, people are lucky if they get to work with you for less than $100 an hour to help <laughs> yeah. them with the sand tray. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you, Laura. And the book that I have worked on and that I am working on now, and I'm going to include some of the sand play in that one, is the one I'm, uh, I have out is for veterans and their families and friends. And I have a section on uh, the spouses and the children, what they can do for their veteran, but also what they can do for themselves and how the parents can deal with the children. And it's called, but most of it is it's 20 steps to help someone with post-trauma stress to recover. Great. And then I have a section at the beginning that gives the definition, you know, the DSM and all that kind of stuff. And also how, what happens in the brain with PTSD or PTS. Very important to understand that. Yeah, yep. And so, uh, so I'm kind of trying to break the myth of what we've had about weakness and craziness and mental illness and all that kind of stuff. And the more we know about the brain, the more we can see that it's a dysfunction just like you get with the kidneys or the liver or, you know, pancreas with diabetes, you, you need some help with it. So, um, that's the first one, and that's on Amazon if you want to buy that. And I've kept it at a low price. I think it's about 14 or $15, about 300 pages. And the next one that I am working on right now, and I may just put that on ebooks myself, and that one is 20 Steps to Recovery at, from uh, Post-Trauma Stress. And that is for everyone, and I am including in that some of the things that are happening now, because I think what is happening for the nation, maybe for the world with, with everything that's going on now with terrorists and with so many, you know, right now we're dealing with so much violence, just the violence is so intense and people are seeing it on TV and they're afraid for their lives a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So I want to address that as well as natural disasters and, uh, you know, what's, what we can do to... Uh, my dad was a refugee, just as an interesting thing. And he came from Russia during the Stalin purges. He escaped. Wow. And... I and he lived in hiding with his family for six years. Oh my gosh. And when they finally escaped, and I, I asked him, How, Dad, were you able to live through that with being without being so incredibly afraid and doing stupid things, right? Because when we get afraid we tend to not think properly from our frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. And he said well, Anna, 
I was just as afraid as anybody else. But we just decided not to kill people and do things like that in return. So it's a decision we make mm-hmm. at that point. We can be afraid. That's perfectly fine. But we can also decide how we want to act on that and how we want to deal with our fear. Yeah, without losing our humanity. Exactly, exactly. So that'll be my next book, and it'll come out, should be coming out in a couple of months. Fantastic. Well, Anna, thank you so much for giving me your time today. And I know our audience is probably eating up everything you're saying and wanting to hear more. So I really appreciate your sharing all of your experience in this short bit of time that I gave you to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Anna Goodwin about sand play. I hope you found it interesting as I did to hear from her about how sand play can be used in therapy and her book written co-authored with Barbara Boyk is a very comprehensive textbook about using sand play therapy in practice with clients. So if you're a therapist who's interested in implementing this, that would be a great book to start with. I enjoyed talking with Anna so much that we agreed to have another interview, which you can listen for in the future, where she will be talking with me about how therapists can use sand play ourselves for self-care as part of our self-care practice and to process emotions that might come up after therapy sessions with our clients. So look for that in the future. And in the meantime, please visit iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and all the other places where Therapy Chat is found to subscribe and leave a rating and review. When you subscribe, you'll receive all the latest episodes as soon as they come out. They'll be downloaded directly to your device. Thanks so much for listening to Therapy Chat. Talk to you soon. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.
Thanks again to Leslie University for sponsoring today's episode. At Leslie University, you'll receive state-of-the-art training in clinical mental health counseling that integrates mind-body behavioral health, trauma studies, school counseling, and social justice advocacy. Leslie University's graduate programs innovate across disciplines from clinical mental health counseling specialties to pioneering coursework in expressive therapies, giving you the perspective to heal the whole person. Leslie University was the first graduate school in the U.S. to train professionals in the emerging field of expressive therapies. Today, Leslie's program is the largest of its kind and remains at the forefront of innovation. Leslie University's Cambridge location is a springboard to field placement opportunities where you'll put your learning into practice. You'll work in clinics, schools, and community organizations alongside practitioners and activists who are revolutionizing the field of mental health counseling. Discover master's and PhD programs at leslie.edu slash mental dash health. Thank you for listening to the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, visit Laura's website at www.lauraregan.lcswc.com 